Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Rachel Kite and Michael Lerner. Rachel Kite, welcome to the New School. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Rachel, you are presently the Director of the Environment and Social Development Program at the International Finance Corporation, and you took that job in January of 2004. And the International Finance Corporation is part of the the World Bank Group. So just to start, can you tell us what the International Finance Corporation actually does and why it's important to people who care about the environment and sustainability? Well, the uh, International Finance Corporation, or IFC, um, as it's uh, commonly known, is one of uh, five banks that make up the World Bank Group. Um, the pieces which are more commonly known are the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the International Development Association, which are lending uh, to sovereigns, which is that they are lending um, financial finances on concessional terms to governments, so sovereign lending. The IFC was set up a, sort of a decade after uh, those two parts of the bank uh, in the early 50s to um, basically invest in the private sector in the countries that belong to the World Bank Group. Um, in the early days, uh, this was a sort of strategic investment at a time when there was very little foreign direct investment in the world um, and very little of it going into, into private sector companies in, in developing countries. Over the years, the role of private finance in, um, as an engine of economic growth and as an engine of sustainable economic growth has become more and more important. Um, and so has IFC uh, within the World Bank Group. What we actually do on a day-to-day basis is um, two things, really. We have an uh, investment services and advisory services. Investment services mean that we we actually invest in private sector companies in developing countries. Um, uh, we also then uh, create financial instruments that will help uh, develop the capital markets in, in developing countries so that local firms can get financing domestically. And we have advisory services, which are um, in some, some ways akin to consulting services, advising both the government on how to create an, a climate which will um, produce greater and more sustainable investment, both domestic and foreign, and uh, advice to firms on how to improve their practices and how to continually improve and become better, uh, more stable, more sustainable companies. Um, the relative importance of private sector investment to public sector investment can be understood from, from, from a few figures, really. Um, total official development assistance from, um, from OECD countries into developing OECD countries. OECD meaning what? Meaning the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, so meaning developed countries or right. countries whose economies are considered to be developed. So these are, you know, the Europeans, the Australians, Japanese, the U.S., Canada, etc. Right. These countries who who are traditionally the aid donors. Right. Um, now, total official development assistance is rising, 
Um, and I think in 2005, it was 100, around about $107 billion, which was a record high. Obviously, most of that goes to Afghanistan and Iraq. But, in the, but at the same time, foreign direct investments, this is private flows, uh, rose by 22% and reached $334 billion. So foreign direct investments of private investment flows into developing countries outstrip aid flows by three to one, and that is and that ratio is growing um, significantly. The other the other part of it is that many developing countries are increasingly getting investment not from the traditional north, but from 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 south south. So Chinese companies going into Africa, Brazilian com- companies going into Africa, Indian companies going into uh, going into you know Southeast Asia, um, and so this is a very important and new dynamic within within the global economy. So your job at the International Finance Corporation is as director, as I said, of Environment and Social uh, Development, and uh, what you've been involved in is developing the new sustainability policy and the performance and disclosure policy for the International Finance Corporation and overhauling the system to support the strategic importance that the IFC places on the environment and sustainable development. In other words, as I understand it, you are the, the point person to, who seeks to make sure that this uh, flow of uh, private uh, uh, investments into developing countries uh, works for the people of those countries and for the environment in terms of as much uh, equity and as much uh, environmental sustainability as possible. Is that basically what you do? Yeah, I think that, that's very well put. It, 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 in crude terms, I have, I have two responsibilities. One is to ensure that uh, every investment we make for our own account meets the standards that we set for environment and social performance. Um, and I, I, I was instrumental in, in, in leading the, the change in the way in which we set standards for our own investment and also um, have put a lot of effort into ensuring that there is a level playing field for both for companies who receive investment so that they know what standards investors expect but also making sure that all investors are kind of using the same standard because that, that there is to promote a race to the top on environment and social standards and not a race to the bottom. And we've had enormous success in, in having these new standards for foreign investment um, now embraced for foreign and domestic investment by um, today it's 53 commercial banks um, controlling uh, 85% of all project finance flows into developing countries and all export credit guarantee agencies and some political risk insurers are now also using our standards. So we've, we've set a new standard and that standard has become a benchmark for all investment um, in terms of environment social performance. And they're called the equator principles? Is that what they're called that have been adopted by these uh, more than 50 financial institutions? Yes, they, they are known within the banking community as the equator principles. And what are the main principles? What are, what's the gist of these principles that you've developed for uh, private investment in developing countries? Well, the, the main gist, I think, is a reflection of how much more we understand 
um, how the private sector can influence positively and negatively both the environment and the sustainability of a community. I think that it, uh, 20 years ago, um, when there was a wave of environmental regulation around the world and um, you know, people were copying both the European Commission and, the, and EPA in terms of how to set standards of regulation within the public sector. Um, the EPA being the Environmental United Protection United States Environmental Agency. Protection right. Agency, yeah. Um, you know, all of the emphasis was on regulation. And uh, regulate. we know that well-regulated um, uh, countries do have higher environmental performance, so it's a very important part of it. But then nobody was really addressing... Um, uh, what the incentives are to the private sector to actually perform perform well. So how do you take regulation and, and, and build a business case around high performance? And so there's been a lot of work, I think, in the last decade around the fact that companies that have um, good management systems, meaning that they manage not only their loss control and their profit and their uh, financials and their balance sheet, but also manage their environmental risks, their environmental opportunities, their, their relationships with their workforce, relationships with communities, that companies that have good integrated management systems that address all risks and all opportunities actually perform better financially over the long run. Now, if that, if that is true and that can be consistently proven, then the conversation that you have with a company about why they should set the emissions limit at this level, why they should adhere to good practices of collective bargaining, why they should consult and engage with the community becomes not a conversation of we meet, you must do this, and it becomes a cost center within the company, but rather you must do this because it is the right thing to do, it is equitable, it is the standards of how we expect the private sector to behave in this economy, but it's also, actually, this is very smart business. This is going to return to your bottom line, and this is going to attract more investors because investors understand that you are a better risk. And so there's been a, a, a sea change in, in how we understand the business case for environment and social performance. And so these new standards are very much based on performance. We set, we set standards for performance for companies. Um, uh, which m must be met depending on different risk scenarios. We set very clear guidelines and standards for reporting, for consultation, for the engagement of workforce and community, understanding that partnership is actually what produces good companies and good development results as well. So I think that there's much more emphasis on the social side of things and much more emphasis on performance and how this becomes embedded in a company's management. So... Uh, let's let's talk about some on-the-ground examples of uh, of this kind of incentive in action. And just, I have no idea if you're involved in this at all, but we hear a lot in Africa about rapacious uh, international countries coming in and just cutting down forests and uh, in just a really savage way. And um, so. Why is it really in the interest of those companies uh, to to manage forests sustainably, to do those things, when the cheapest and simplest thing is to just get in and get out and make as much profit as possible? Have you been involved? Has IFC been involved in the issue of uh, uh, you know the the cutting down of forests in Africa? Just as an example. Uh 
we we actually have an extremely limited exposure to uh, forest products in Africa for for two reasons, and there's there's an irony here and, and something that we should explore more, which is that the state of governance in in most of these countries um, is weak um, and very challenging, um, and often in weak governance uh, regimes, environmental permits are one of one of the weakest elements of a weak regime. And so um, the levels of corruption and malfeasance within the forest product sector have traditionally been extremely high, which would mean that it would be prohibitive for us to become involved because there's, there's, there's no company out there that would meet our standards, nor would we be able to be confident that we would be uh, we would we would be able to avoid some of the corrupt practices. Now, so that I mean, so we're not we're we're very very um, scantily involved in the sector in that particular continent. And this is so this is the challenge from a development perspective. Uh, it, at the moment, uh, much of the investment is coming um, is coming from uh, other parts of the world is being fueled by the need for resources that is coming from the year-on-year, whether you believe it's a super cycle or not, the year-on-year GDP growth that has been posted in Asia. And so you're seeing Malaysian and Chinese and uh, and other companies uh, coming coming in and and stripping assets uh, without meeting the standards of um, sustainable forest management, without meeting standards of community consultation, indigenous people's rights, uh, cultural property, etc., and so the, the dilemma for the, the dilemma for the World Bank Group uh, and for others who believe that the, these standards make sense in the long run is, you know, where where do you enter into that vicious into that vicious circle? Um, now, the long range view of that is that um, is that you know, if we take China as an example, that there are forces in, in, in significant positions within the Chinese economy who are not interested in China uh, becoming the poster child for the 21st century of, of, the, of the rape of another, another form of imperial rape of the resources of the world. I mean, that is not how they want to see China written into the history books in the next, uh, in the next few hundred years, um, and that they are interested in the sustainable um, harvesting of resources, and they are interested in the sustainability issues around their need for resources. And, of course, you've got a, a very difficult situation in terms of the regulation of that economy and who's in charge and how you rein in simply hundreds of thousands of companies that are just trying to meet demand. So you've got definitely a Chinese, uh, a Chinese issue um, and a, a Southeast Asian issue in particular. So how do you, how do you persuade... Uh, I don't think that you can win that battle on the ground in the Democratic Republic of Congo or on the ground in Cameroon. In those countries, the conversation is about why it's in their best interest to be able to regulate uh, the sustainable use of their resources because the, the natural heritage of those countries is so important for any kind of sustainable economic growth going forward. The solution is also then a conversation in Beijing and a conversation in Delhi and a conversation in Kuala Lumpur about how your companies behave when they are overseas. Uh, and you have to do two things at the same time. One other driver, I think, however, is that globally the demand for um, source information and certification, so where did 
the lumber come from for you know, this piece of furniture? But where did the lumber come come from this for this pulp? Where did the lumber come from for this, that, or the other construction? That is growing uh, at quite a significant rate. Um, uh, it's is still the, very small. I is think IFC involved with that, or is that on the other end? In other words, you're mostly involved in, are you not, in in, uh, in setting standards uh, for the industries going in, but are you also engaged with the, the many efforts to identify sources of, say, sustainable teak wood and teak furniture and, and strengthen those, uh, those standards? Is that also a an, an arena in which you engage as part of this? Yeah, no, we've been trying to sort of prime the pump a little bit by getting involved and convening in certain circumstances the conversation around how to set up a, a sustainability within a complete supply chain. So this starts with the end-use buyers and their demands and then talking to the really big companies who are you know, selling consumer goods to the consumer about the standards that they are demanding in order to protect their brand, quite frankly, then how those standards get articulated to commodity suppliers, whether it's lumber merchants or soy farm, uh, soy traders or cotton traders, etc., how those standards are then uh, moved down a supply chain to the farmers, uh, who are normally large farmers, and then how small farmers who can, uh, can, get, can get access to credit and technical resources so that they can produce a high-premium product which will allow them to get into the, to that, to that piece of the supply chain, which is a high-value add, which is, you know, the organic or the certified or whatever, whatever it is we're talking about. So, and then talking to banks about why companies who can meet the value premium within that supply chain are actually banking a better, a better company because... The, the, the standards and the criteria that would go with saying that this is a sustainably harvested product uh, mean that probably the resource is being managed better, the, the employees are being treated better, the community is more aligned with the company, and that makes them a better credit risk. I understand how that would work in, in, in many uh, parts of the world, but let me come back to Africa just for a moment and to uh, the, the famous case of Darfur and the role, if I understand it correctly, of a Chinese uh, oil company that's doing business uh, uh, in Darfur, uh, which I believe Warren Buffett is invested in. I don't have the yeah. details at, at hand. Uh, but there's been a tremendous amount of pressure on Warren Buffett, one of the great investors in the United States, and on this uh, Chinese oil company to uh, put pressure on the the government in Darfur not to uh, continue the genocide that's been going on there. So is that, again, a place where the IFC has been involved or does the IFC have a, a role to play? So I think that we, we, have a, we, we believe we have a role to play where we have a private sector client in a situation like that, a private sector client who wishes to um, work to high standards because they see the business case for it or they see that or a company that wants to move towards being a high standard company um, I think as an investor um, being on the same page as the management and the board of the company in whom you invest is probably the most important part of the investment process because if something happens if you hit bumps across the road you are not going to get the return on your investment nor is the company going to succeed if you and they are not aligned 
Now, frankly, there are not very many Chinese companies out there that need any international financing at the moment. The Chinese economy is highly liquid. And so, yes, we have, uh, you know, high standards for environment and social performance. We have high standards for corporate governance. We have high standards for, in fact, how you manage your balance sheet and your business. And, and we can only influence the market by being involved in the market with companies who do well while, doing, while meeting those standards. Is there a constant debate about the fact that if you set high standards, you exclude companies um, from the market because there is so much liquidity and there are so many other companies that will come in and do the deals um, that you can't do because the standards won't let you? Yes. Is there a tension around that? Absolutely. Uh, I think Sudan and, and various other countries are the exemplars of that. Um, we, you know, uh, we have to get in where we can and we have to show by demonstration as much to African governments as well as to other companies that there is a different way to do this business and that the community, the environment and the company can all win as well as obviously uh, obviously, the, the, the countries that receive the revenues through royalties and fees. So if I understand you correctly, just to sort of simplify this, you have this uh, enormous... Uh, potential leverage because you and more than 50 other uh, financial institutions have gotten behind the equator principles that you played a central role in developing that work in, in favor of sustainability, uh, economic and environmental sustainability. The challenge, though, is that in a lot of the countries where we would most like to see that, that very weak governance leads to corruption and malfeasance uh, in terms of granting permits to cut down forests and that kind of thing. And therefore, there's not a governmental partner to work with effectively there. And secondly, that a, a growing part of the investment is coming from China and Asia that are very liquid, that have a lot of cash. And so they don't need the kinds of loan guarantees or loans that you provide, and therefore you only have leverage there where there are partners who want to work with you and who buy the argument uh, that they will perform better financially over time if they meet uh, environmental and social and community standards. And so th those seem to be some of the the limitations on how you can work effectively. Am I understanding you correctly? No, I think I think you're you're absolutely right. And I would say that there are two or three points of leverage in that scenario that you've 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 you've, you've described. One is that if you're a Chinese company and you want to become a global company, you are very aware that outside of China, what the consumer, what the investor, uh, whether it's institutional or individual or whatever, wants is to know that they are, are getting involved in something which is well managed from a risk perspective. They know that there is high level of sensitivity about environment and social issues. And we get a lot of requests from companies whose aspiration is to be a global company or a global brand about, look, how do we, how do, we do this? So we, there is no yawning silence in our dialogue with Chinese companies. There is a, a real, um, a, a very vibrant dialogue about, well, how would we do this better? Um, and I think that Chinese banks as well are also a, a very afraid of a huge, what I would say, environmental non-performing loan situation. 
you know, some of the, you know, a, a bad environment, a company that is going to run a huge environmental risk and eventually get found out for it. And remember, the Chinese company, Chinese government is now fining significantly uh, companies within Chinese territory if they are if they are malperforming. I mean, they're trying to make examples of some of the big companies that are doing so very effectively at the moment. If you're a bank, you you do not want to have a company that is running up, you know, um, trillions of dollars of fines, uh, or tr- sorry, trillions of renminbi of fines, uh, because they're a bad risk for you, and they're going to end up in, in, you know, in your, you know, special operations unit or whatever. So, so we're getting Chinese banks asking, look, right. we believe there's something in these standards because we believe that they're good banking. Can you help us understand how we integrate these kinds of screens into our credit process? So the, the problem is the scale of the problem. I, I, I do think that there's, there's a lot that's moving quite fast in the dialogue. Give us an example, Rachel, if you would, of a, uh, a concrete country or a concrete uh, industry where uh, these standards have really worked the way you intended them to, where, where you have been able, uh, the IFC has been able to, to make a difference in terms of the way an industrial sector or the development in a in a country or a set of countries has moved. Well, I think um, I think there are two um, two two very two very good examples. One one is that um, we have in the new standards we we talk about we talk about what, what is the influence of a company. And, you know, depending on the type of business the company's involved in, it goes long, way beyond the factory gates. So we started to talk about supply chains and your responsibility down the supply chain for setting standards. And that responsibility relates, relates to what is the actual supply chain that you're using, but also to your influence over that supply chain. So if you are buying 90% of the widgets that a company is making, you have an enormous influence over how that company produces the widgets, how it treats its employees, how it disposes of effluent, etc. If you are buying 1%, of the product of a company, and there are 20,000 other firms buying from the same company, you have limited leverage. But getting companies to think about their supply chain and think about uh, what their influence and their responsibility and their liability is down that supply chain, and we've been able to uh, change the way that soy farmers in Brazil think about their responsibility for setting standards for their outgrowers, uh, sorry, soy traders, um, how soy traders think about their responsibility for setting standards for their for the farmers that are providing them with the soy in terms of environmental stewardship and social um, and the social standards of those farmers and how they relate to the communities. Okay, let's take that that example. Now, do, does Brazil provide soy to the United States, for example? Yes, I mean soy is one of uh, Brazil is one of the biggest soy exporters in the world. Right, so that when Americans drink soy milk, for example, yes. or eat soy products. There's a good possibility that that soy product may have come from Brazil? Yes. Okay. So then uh, it becomes of interest to an American audience, for example, to understand how your work with those soy traders is really impacting the way the farmers who grow soy grow soy. So, for example... Does it impact the way they use pesticides on the soy? Does it? What does it impact? 
So in the first instance, uh, the, probably the biggest impact is that soy, you know, so, soy um, has soy soy planting has followed the um, cattle grazing that has come from the clearing of Amazonian territory. I see. And so the first instance is if you are a soy trader, you should not be buying soy from a farmer who is sowing soy on illegal land. So do you know when your farmer got that land? Was it titled properly? Is it legal? Uh, Is it in an area where soy farming is allowed to happen? The Brazilian government has changed the laws and tightened them considerably over the last few years. So you as a trader can't be, you can no longer be ignorant of or or close your eyes to the source of the soy that you are trading. Mm -hmm. So that's the first huge impact. Second then is are you using best environmental management practices in terms of the tilling of the land, in terms of the use of inputs, um, chemical or otherwise? Um, are you, um, you know, what is your relationship with, um, the, not with the farmer, but also how does the farmer treat the people, the day laborers, etc., who are working on that, on that farm? Is that farm using bonded or, or slave labor, which is a huge uh, issue in the parts of the interior of Brazil? Uh, there is a blacklist uh, of farms that use uh, or have used in the past bonded and, 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 and forced labor. You know, is the farmer in your supply chain, have you checked, is he on that list? If he's on that list, how are you going to get him off that list, etc.? Things like this. So it's everything from the environmental stewardship of the land, the legality of the land, the legality of their labor practices and the way in which they uh, operate within, within the local community. So- So what is your leverage with the soy traders? How do you get them to um, ask these questions? The leverage in, in, in the, the first investment that we made with Grupo Amaji, um, which has sort of uh, then led to uh, other, uh, other soy farms, uh, soy traders doing the same thing, um, was really that soy was becoming increasingly controversial. Uh, the destruction of the Amazon, the push and pull factors around around that, which in which in large part was the year on year increase in demand for soy, and the fact that Brazil had huge comparative and competitive advantage in growing soy quickly and had large land mass. So Brazil was beginning, and Brazilian soy uh, traders, and most of whom are international, Grupo Maggi is a Brazilian company, were beginning to be in the eye of a storm which would be akin to, you know, what's happened to the mining industry over the last 10 years or to, you know, to, to other industries that have come under severe attack. Um, and so, the, you know, the question was, look, you are going to have to be able to answer pertinent questions that are coming now, not only from uh, perhaps, the, you know, sort of one, one end of the environmental spectrum internationally, but these questions are now coming from the labor movement, they're coming from... Uh, the EU, they're coming from the countries into which you're trying to sell soy. You are going to have to be positioned to be able to prove source of origin and prove the standard with which you uh, are, are producing the soy and then selling it on. And what we were able to do was persuade this company that there was a competitive advantage to them from being the first mover. And that if they if they did this, then there would be a huge open market for them. They would be able to sell into that market that cared 
about what, where the soy came from and then how the soy had been raised. And they, uh, this company um, was perhaps a reluctant in the first instance, but after working with them, saw that this would actually probably lead to productivity and marketing gains, and, and they've really taken what we suggested, and they've gone much further than we thought they would. Were there uh, NGO partners, non-governmental organizations in the environment and labor and other areas that saw this opportunity with you and were uh, working either separately or in collaboration with you toward the same end, or was this something that uh, that you developed really without much uh, NGO pressure? I think the initial conversations with Amaji were, were very much us and them. Uh, this was a company that um, who had been founded by uh, the Amaji family uh, who were highly politically, uh, very politically prominent and involved in political the politics of Brazil. Um, there are a lot of international environment NGOs that were working with the um, international soy companies, so Archer Daniel Midland, Cargill, etc. But they they weren't working with the with this Brazilian company. However, once we got the dialogue going, there we 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 pushed Amaji into what was beginning at that point to be a global dialogue around sustainable soy, and we encouraged them. They were very reluctant to go to this meeting because or to take a leadership position because they, you know, frankly, they're a Brazilian company. They know Brazil. They know what they do, but. They, though this may seem strange to us, are somewhat off-put and frightened by the the sophistication and the resources of international environment organisations. And they were like, "Look, are we are we setting ourselves up just to become a whipping boy?" And we encouraged them to be part of that global dialogue. As a result of that global dialogue, and they're, they're sort of branching out a little bit beyond their own world of soy. Um, they've set up now extremely productive relationships with Brazilian NGOs. Um, who are the world's leading experts in the Amazon and in natural resource management. So organizations like uh, Imazon and IPAM uh, and some of the NGOs that are linked to academic institutions in Brazil. Uh, and they've, they've gotten a little bit more courageous and a little bit more confident in their interaction with both the press but also with the international NGO community and the sort of world of sustainable development, which frankly... As a, as a Brazilian soy ranchers, um, that was not their natural domain, and they were, they were a little bit reticent about getting involved in that world. So is this example with the soy traders um, a sort of a typical example of the way you would work with uh, an industry? Is this uh, sort of an example of the scale at which you find you can do appropriate work? Can you give us perhaps one other example uh, a brief example of a different kind so that we have one other sure. sort of piece of data uh, with which to understand how this works yeah i think that's um, that's uh, i think that's becoming more typical the emoji example at the time we did that transaction i think it was quite new um, another one would be uh, another interesting one is actually uh, uh, an international company uh, based in Scotland, um, uh, a group called Cairn Oil. They're a small, medium-sized uh, oil company, which is uh, of itself uh, quite unusual. Um, and they uh, they had won a set of concessions in Rajasthan to explore for and, and develop oil resources. 
Um, and this is a part of India that didn't know this kind of um, international company coming in, etc. Uh, now, they were by far uh, and away already a best practice company uh, in terms of environmental management and, and also in terms of the way that they outreach the community and, and, and consult and, and, and build relationships with the community. But they realized that Rajasthan is extremely poor and there is an optical issue around pulling out, you know, a precious resource from a very poor community. And they realized that uh, if they were going to be there for a while, they would need to do more than just uh, just the, the basics of consultation, etc. And so they came, we, we were working with them over financing because India is a very difficult uh, place bureaucratically for foreign investors. Um, but we, we basically sat down with them and they said, look, here are a set of issues that we've identified in the community and we really need technical help uh, on how to structure something that would be meaningful for the, com- for the community using some of our revenue and plowing it back in. And as a result, really, you know, I, I think that we shouldn't take the credit for their vision. It was their vision. But we helped them um, with, set up a, an HIV AIDS uh, program between the company and the community because they will be drawing staff from the community. It's in their business interest that this community is healthy as well as in their sort of moral interest. Um, we've also helped them build a, a, pro- a program whereby they are sourcing as much as they possibly can from local companies. And so you capture more revenue into the local community and the whole community starts to grow, not just the, the tax coffers of the central government because that's where the revenue from the oil goes. Uh, and then the third part of that was really um, that the situation of women in Rajasthan is particularly miserable and whether or not there was something that they should be doing around the education and economic empowerment of women because they would be able to employ more women and women would be good assets for them, whether it came from driving trucks or doing other things. And so was there something that they should be doing there? So they have extremely successful programs, which we were able to technically help them with alongside, I think, a loan that we made, which was in the region of about $60 million. So it was both an investment and an advisory piece of work for a good practice company working in an extremely difficult part of the world where mistakes can easily get made. You just mentioned uh, the economic uh, empowerment and education of women as a concern. And when I first met you, Rachel, it was at the Earth Summit in uh, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Brazil, uh, which was a, a very important turning point in the, in the movement for sustainability. And I wanted to take you back to that time for a moment. Uh, you were uh, a young uh, English woman. I remember very vividly meeting you um, uh, a group of us had come down, interest from the United States, concerned with the Earth Summit. And I remember meeting you in the company of an extraordinary uh, Philippine leader named Maximo Kalau, Jr., Juni Kalau. And uh, we were sitting in a circle, uh, and Juni Kalau and the Philippine uh, NGO, non-governmental organization contingent, had really played a a central role in uh, developing the the parallel meeting to the official uh, uh, meeting that was taking place in Rio, a huge, huge meeting of uh, civil society organizations. And I remember being fascinated in that that context in, in Rio. There were the uh, indigenous communities, there were the people concerned with labor, there were the people concerned with the environment, there was the women's movement, and there were a whole set of different uh, civil society uh, constituencies. 
and I, I remember thinking in retrospect as I, as I watched uh, the civil society movement for social and environmental sustainability play out over the uh, 15 years and more uh, since the Earth Summit, um, I remember uh, being fascinated uh, by the extraordinary staying power of the women's movement and how it was not at all clear at the Earth Summit that the women's movement would become such an extraordinary global force. Uh, you, you played a, a very key role in the development of the women's movement for many years before you joined uh, the IFC and the World Bank Group. And I just wanted to ask you, as you look at the historical trajectory of the women's movement, uh, what have you learned over the last 15 years that you didn't know when we were sitting there together at the Earth Summit? And uh, how do you think uh, historians will see this period in terms of the global uh, women's movement for women's rights, for women's reproductive rights, for education, for economic empowerment? for sustainability and so forth? Well, the, the thing that I've learned is there's more way to skin a rabbit. There's more than one way to skin a rabbit because um, I, I've learned uh, the hard way, but the good news is that I think I've learned that, that I did learn is that you can, the objective can be reached um, if you're able to be flexible and flexible both in, in who you form partnerships with to get to the objective, but also flexible in the language that you use and the way in which you frame issues um, and, uh, and, and, and the, the, you, know, the, you don't just have to keep banging away uh, in order to get there on this, you know, in a sort of a monotone and a, and a rather sort of strident way. I, I think that the women's movement in the development debate is fundamental because I honestly believe that unless, if, when the women's movement is not in the room, or when people who are informed by the honesty, the integrity, the vision, and the sort of fundamental right uh, and sort of justice element of the women's movement, when they're not in the room, I have to tell you the conversation sometimes gets carried away with itself, and we forget um, uh, some of the basics and some of the fundamentals. You still cannot build sustainable growth or sustainable economies uh, off the backs of 50% of the population, and we still keep trying to do that. Uh, and, you know, there are deeper-seated reasons about why the, uh, the development um, industrial complex tries to do that. What I've found, my, my own tiny part of this puzzle and my own sort of humble contribution is that um, when I came to IFC, um, there was very little, I don't think the words gender or, or, or development impact on women were really uttered at all. And, um, you know, although there was a growing interest amongst some staff individually about this, uh, about three years ago, um, management was persuaded to sort of set up a program to look at what should IFC be doing, in, in, you know, in order to specifically um, empower economically uh, women, because that's what, we, what we're supposed to do for everybody. We weren't doing very much. And what we've done, actually, is we've, we've lighted upon um, something which seems so fundamental and so obvious, and yet it was never being done, which was that um, if you actually look around the world and you look at the numbers of 
small and medium-sized entrepreneurs and business owners who are women, in, in, in large parts of the world, it's the majority. In Africa, it's, it's close to 70% of more small-scale entrepreneurs are actually women. Now, in most parts of the, the world, that those women have additional administrative barriers to access to credit and to their ability to grow their businesses. Uh, you know, in many African countries, uh, women don't have uh, the ability to own land. They're not allowed to uh, by law or by customary law, and therefore they have no asset to collateralize. I mean, I could go on with many, many examples. Well, you know, if you can't collateralize your asset, you can't take out a bank loan, you can't employ the next three people, you can't fill that order, you can't grow your business. And so here we are talking about, this, you know, how to speed up and deepen the economic growth of African countries where most of the entrepreneurs are women, and yet the women cannot actually fundamentally do that because there's all kinds of barriers. Why not remove those barriers? Well, the women's movement for many, many years and through the UN and other avenues have been saying, you must give women their rights, you must allow them to uh, have title to land, you must allow them to own resources. This is in the Beijing platform, this is in the Mexico platform, this is in the Nairobi platform. Now, and when you mention those platforms, those are important meetings of uh, international women's communities that came together in those three cities. Yeah, these are actually United Nations you know, agreements, right. so consensus agreements amongst right. all members of the UN that said, you know, by X date, women everywhere should have legal title to land, etc. And, you know, and, and it hasn't happened. But, you know, on the list of things that a parliament must do in any given year, it's the one thing that always drops off the end. Um, when we walked into the Minister of Finance in Uganda with the basis of some, some research that we'd done and said, you know, Beijing and everybody and all these other platforms had said that this should be done and the Conventional Elimination and Discrimination Against Women also says that you must do this. But actually, let's look at this issue another way. You are foregoing 2% of GDP growth year on year by not allowing women to have access to finance in this way and grow their businesses. You are giving up 2% of GDP growth. You know, that Minister of Finance, well, we had his attention. We had his attention, and so, you know, things started to move. These were administrative barriers, that, I mean, where legislation needs to be passed and legislation can be passed. And we've seen, you know, a lot of effort in Uganda since we presented that information about 18 months ago. There's been, a, you know, a big flurry of activity to try to embrace the women's entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial class. And I think that this is this is very important because often in the development debate, you know, women are seen as the credit, the clients of microcredit. Well, they are, and that's very important. Uh, but uh, there's also a number of women who are probably above the microcredit threshold, and who are running small, medium-sized enterprises, who you know are actually going to be the people who employ other women, uh, and and they their ability to be engines of growth is very important. So. You know, I was very comfortable with the language of rights. I was very comfortable standing up, making compelling speeches about why women's rights were fundamental to economic growth. But uh, I had to turn that on its head and walk into a Ministry of Finance with economic uh, and business data and say, look, you know, I didn't mention the word rights once in that, in that meeting. You know, this is what you need to do. Moving from women as a, a, a critical dimension of the development uh, uh, d debate and dialogue, um, you've also watched over the same period of time the, the tremendous growth of the, the anti-poverty uh, movement around the world. It's, it's interesting. It's not as visible in the United States, but when you go to Europe, 
as you well know, there's a tremendous uh, social interest throughout Europe in, in the anti-poverty debate, and it even spills over into the United States from time to time. Um, but you've just given us a sense of the trajectory of the women's movement. As you've watched the, the anti-poverty and, and the development debate uh, evolve over the last 15 years, how would you describe its evolution? And what are the real prospects that um, over the next decade or so that, that we can really make a decisive difference on global poverty? I think that um, I think that there's something that there's something happened in Europe in the last few years, uh, which was different than here, where you had a convergence um, across the private sector, the government sector, and the third sector, as they call it in Europe, uh, NGOs, of a class of people and a perhaps a generation of people who. Um, uh, were able to combine in their their, their minds and their souls um, the moral case for, for poverty alleviation together with the economic interdependence case for poverty alleviation uh, together with the um, the impact on the global environment of, of, of poverty together with um, you know, perhaps other aspects of the, of the general debate. And I, so I think you, you know, there, there was a, a classic piece that was written, I think, in the New Statesman magazine in the UK about two years ago, where it talked about the fact that in the United States, people were always complaining that there was a revolving door between the White House or senior parts of the administration and sort of Halliburton and the oil industry, whereas in Britain, the revolving door seemed to be between Oxfam um, Save the Children and Christian Aid and, and Number 10 and, and um, various ministries. And that yeah, there seemed to be a cadre of people who came from all walks of life who, who felt that this was a global priority. I think that you it was led largely out of London, but it was very important in the Netherlands, uh, in France, uh, Germany as well. And I think that, uh, you know, I think Europe feels closer to Africa. It has historic ties and legacy issues which uh, confront every generation as well. There is a huge uh, migration as well. You have a whole generation of, uh, of, uh, of African, um, African British citizens, African French citizens, African German citizens. So I think that there is a, a proximity issue as well that spurs the debate. Now, the debate has been, then became very, very focused on debt relief. And it became a very sexy thing, and you had Bono and various other people um, putting faces on, on this campaign, and it became almost fashionable. And there was a whole debate about whether that was actually a good thing or not, and obviously it had its... Uh, it, it, yeah, there are aspects of fad and fashion which are, which are not good. Um, why, why was there a debate over whether the focus should be debt relief? In other words, what were the alternatives that... Well, actually, I don't think that... Well, the, the alternative is not... I think that the debate was not uh, alternative. The debate was it isn't just debt relief. It's everything else as well. Um, the terms of trade, the, the issues around how the EU and the U.S., behave in the WTO, um, and you had a lot of people... That's the World Trade Organization. World Trade Organization. Yeah. You had a lot of people who were saying, look, you know, uh, even if aid was, uh, if, if debt relief was achieved, 
uh, we would still not be able to advance because we haven't uh, done anything to fundamentally alter the trade regimes. We haven't done anything to fundamentally alter the investment climates in these countries. They don't have viable uh, governance regimes. They don't have strong private sectors. I mean, when, you know, so the question was really one of tactics or strategy. You know, do we go for um, getting rid of debt relief because it's a it's a unifying banner. It's um, something that people can really get behind. You can post the success, which is very important. You have to have wins and mileposts. And then we tackle the more uh, difficult and intractable problems of um, changing the, t- uh, the, the the trade rules, etc. And so those were tactical, I think, and strategic debates that were very, very alive and, and still are. What I see now is, um, you know, uh, frankly, um, a little bit of a... Um, I think there's a large part of the uh, NGO community that is comfortable with what it knows. And what it knows is um, government-to-government aid, uh, aid policies, sovereign relationships, uh, the World Bank, um, you know, the, the aid agencies in, in Europe, you know, the USAID equivalent, the United States Agency for International Development. And they're not very comfortable in banking, finance, the private sector, they're not very comfortable in the fact, you know, in how much Beijing lends to to Delhi or, you know, how much flows from Brazil into Mozambique. They're much more familiar with what Portugal gives Mozambique or with what the UK gives Mozambique. And so um, at the, I, I feel that in this fast-growing area of how can you um, create investment climates whereby, you know, small companies thrive and grow and people have jobs which are meaningful and that they can get access to health care and, and education, most of which is privately provided in these countries, um, that there's, there's somehow it, often in the, in the aid debate or in the development debate uh, a sort of a debate that takes place without reference to the private sector. I mean, no, there are not enough aid dollars in the world to be able to provide enough aid for the public provision of health and education in Africa. It, it doesn't happen in any economy in the world, so why would we burden an African country with no tax base with the need to provide public health and education for its citizens? So when are we going to have the conversation about what does good private sector investment in health and education look like in Africa, and, and how do you come up with a way for people to be able to afford that? And so that really is what the equator principles are about and what your work is about at the International Finance Corporation in many respects is is strengthening that dialogue. Yes, exactly. So the principles set the thresholds for risk and for performance. Off the back of that, you identify all kinds of opportunity. Every time you see that there is, say, you know, an emissions level which is very high from a cement firm, uh, a small-scale cement manufacturer in Nigeria, for example, you can do two things. You can say, look, you've got to lower these emissions. But the second thing you can do is say, you know what, by lowering these emissions, maybe you can trade the emissions and get more revenue. Or you can say, why don't we invest in you a little bit more and you build a new kind of uh, um, small uh, one-megawatt thermal uh, power plant, which is cleaner. Um, This is your power source. This will help you improve your technology so that you have less emissions and you'll be able to give power back to the grid and maybe this rural community which has grown up around your factory gates can then have off-grid rural electricity supply. So from every risk, there is an opportunity 
and you, you, can, you can identify that, you can start connecting dots for people. Suppose that uh, the next president of the United States was someone who cared about uh, the environment and uh, sustainable development, and you had an opportunity to speak to a, a senior uh, cabinet-level staff person or to the uh, president-elect herself or himself about these questions, and you had uh, three minutes or so to really make the case for what the new president uh, should do, what would you say to her? Um, I, I would say stop looking at development as if it is the second thing that the Department of State does when it wakes up in the morning. Stop looking at development as being, you know, what, um, what USAID does every day when it wakes up in the morning and start looking at start looking at development as something that cuts across uh, every element of your international finance, international trade and international relations agenda. I think what Gordon Brown has done in London is a very good thing. Study it. Look at it. Do you need to actually restructure the way in which this country engages? in order to get these issues at the heart of U.S. policy. There is huge gain for the U.S. from engaging and, 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 and changing the terms. We're, 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 we're um, losing as much as anybody else's. Secondly, a real initiative around the trade agenda. Thirdly, uh, a huge um, effort uh, around issues of farming, agricultural subsidy. And fourth, that this country, if it was serious, about understanding the opportunities that come from global climate change, not just the potential risks to Michigan and other states from an economic, short-term economic perspective. This country, the rest of the world is absolutely convinced that this country, if it put its mind to it, could become the most important climate force for good within a very, very short period of time. The Europeans might be ahead of us now, but they know that the minute that we put our minds to it, we can outstrip everybody else. And if this country was interested in funding innovation uh, in energy sources and funding, funding innovation in energy efficiency, uh, we could have an enormous impact for good. Rachel Kite, thank you very much for being with us at the New School. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live telephone audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at thenewschool at commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all New School conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Thank you for joining us.